There was a, um, when I was a kid, we had these friends, um, the Corns, and Evelyn Corn was a nurse who smoked, a lot of nurses smoke, and she had this um, uh, hobby. She she made pottery. They lived out, out in the countryside in Selma, and she made pottery, and um, she made pottery in a barn, pottery barn, and she had this barn in the back of our property, and it was so creepy. They had the pottery wheel, but I would go out there as a kid, and there was something about going into that barn when there were no lights, and the, the, the light that came from the sun was peeking through the shingles missing in the roof, and it would catch the dust. And it was like one of the creepiest things, and yet it's ineffable, something that's really, really hard to describe. Um, and, it, and that's a picture that stays with me from childhood because it was the first time I realized that there was something that could be super moving that you would have a hard time articulating to the outside world. And to me, that's where great art comes in. And to me, that's the kind of thing I see a lot in the movie we're talking about today. And that's 1968, 68, Eight. how the how the West was won. Sorry, I, got, I get confused because there's also... Um, What's the one from '62 with uh, also with Henry Fonda and a, and a cavalcade of people? How the West was won. That's how the West was won. We're wa- we're watching 1968. Oh, once once upon, once a, upon time a time in the West. West. I did it. Ah, oh, fucking Evan, I did it. I, I I wrote it down so as not to confuse those two movies because no matter how many times I say it to myself, I always confuse the fucking two titles. Once upon a time in the West, 1968. The 62 one was even wider, that screen. Yeah, and by the way, um, our my co-host, my co-host Tom Smith has suffered a serious case of anal leakage, and I want all well-wishers to, to email us um, some well-wishings for Tom. It's a really serious matter. He doesn't seem to be able to stop the leakage from happening. Um, but in Thoughts the meantime, um, I have um, a beautiful replacement, and that is Evan Faulkner. Sometimes goes by Evan Monroe, Monroe Faulkner. Hey, Evan. Hey, or just Evan Monroe. That's what I use on stage. Evan Monroe? Yeah, it's my middle name. Speaking of stage, before we get into the movie, you do a lot of the comedy, and um, that's taken quite a hit hit right now. COVID. Yeah. It's a dead... I mean, do you... How do you you envision that coming back? Will it? How? Uh, Well, I foresee comedy shows where people, they remove half the tables... And a bunch of people are wearing masks. Fun. And, uh, funny. Funny that, stuff. I mean, it just makes for good material. I guess so. One of the things I'm worried about is that when comedy does, sort of, when comics get back on stage, there's going to be one joke or one sort of field of material. And it's like, the COVID. And it's like, oh, people are going to fuck yourself. Like, but what else are you going to talk about? Comics talk about their lives. We're all in COVIDville. I know. What are, They're going to have to... It's something to joke about besides the usual, like, uh, you know, differences between the races and, and males and females. Yep. Um, okay, so let's get into it. Um, that sort of long-winded introduction about, like, what I saw in a barn and the light and all that sort of stuff. I wasn't trying to be, like, um, obtuse or corny, but it's like, that's one of the things that I, I think um, about this film that's really interesting is, like, it's a, it's a piece of art. Yes, very much so. Um, and uh, I, what, what was your? Uh, when did you first see this movie? This week. I'd never seen it before. Oh, wow! I was okay. brand yeah. new to it, and my wife watched it for two thirds of the movie. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if she made it through the whole movie, I would be very, very surprised. I, I, a footnote, by the way, it's not that she didn't like it. She just had pressing uh, matters. She was kind of taken with it, too. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I got to say, the first time I saw it was in the early 2000s, you know, in the golden age of DVD. They released, um, Paramount <laughs> released this beautiful two-disc edition. It had interviews with, like, John Carpenter and all these other fans. And um, I have to say, the first time I watched it, it was it just seemed a little too slow for me, and the plot was convoluted. It wasn't, it's very different from the Dollars trilogy that Leon made prior to that uh however every time i revisit this film you know five ten years every time i see it just gets better and better and it's yeah it's a, it's a masterpiece can i call upon you as an expert evan to sort of ramp up because you called it the dollars trilogy yes not the man with no name trilogy because he does have a name in right. fact a different name in each of those films right god damn it. <laughs> so, so the dollars trilogy is he takes a long swig yes is uh oh it's uh a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good the bad and the ugly yeah. so, my bad for those that don't know and ugly yeah 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 well the uninitiated right so it's like i i had seen of course i had seen those films before and and am an admirer of those but i have to say i guess I, I just want to sort of go out of the gate here saying i think this is a better film than the good the bad and the ugly i mean this is a fucking god damn is it is it um cinematic i mean that's the first word that comes to mind is it's just absolutely cinematic yeah it seems like leone was building on the style that he did in the good the bad and the ugly see if i don't know if you have a gun to my head with with a harmonica in my mouth and, and you're standing you on a grave pick, with a noose around your neck yes go ahead <laughs> spoiler yeah if you uh, if, if it came down to that and i had to choose between the good the bad and the ugly and once upon a time in the west i think i would still choose the good the bad and the ugly but who knows? Maybe next time I watch it a few years down the road, that might change my opinion. Well, the context of, of sort of like watching movies whenever you and I each started watching movies also changes it because I, you know, in 1966 or seven, The Good and Bad and the Ugly, I guess Clint Eastwood at that point, you know, having done like Rawhide and Cat Baloo and a couple of others, Cat Baloo? Yeah. Um, it's like it might be kind of surprising to see him in that role in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Whereas if if you enter knowing Clint Eastwood as a movie watcher in the eighties, you go, oh yeah, he's sort of rough and he's 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 more diversified and rough, and it's like not as it's like that's in keeping. Whereas Henry Fonda is just a total shocker in this movie. What a what oh, a yeah. what a dastardly black-hearted man he is. He is a bastard in this film, and I believe that was his first role as a villain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, according to the trivia, he showed up with dark contacts and, and a mustache, and Sergio Leone was like, oh, no, 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 I want those baby blue eyes yeah. to contrast with your evil deeds. Yeah. And it worked great. He's amazing. Leone's amazing. I mean, the, he did a like a film in '71. I forget the name, and then and then I think all the way to '84 before he does Once Upon a Time in America. Got you sucker. Have you seen that? Got you sucker. Uh, I, the, I a long time ago, and I watched the first half hour, and it kind of I don't know. I wasn't digging it at the time, but I'm sure if I watch it now, I'll, I'll really enjoy it. Duck you sucker. And then he did. Well, he produced and allegedly co-directed um, another Western with uh, 
Henry Fonda. It's called uh, My Name is Nobody. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. It's pretty good. It's on Prime as well, right? Um, My Name is Nobody and Once Upon a Once Upon a Time in the West are currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And My Name is Nobody is shorter than this film, and it's that the tone is a lot lighter, you know, kind of like the Dollars trilogy. One of the things I like about this film, and it's also true of um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, it's definitely true of Once Upon a Time in America, is um, Leone is not... A, and, and I think it's something that, that um, obviously clearly influenced Tarantino. And side note, I see the huge influence of this film on Tarantino. But it's that that you can create excitement out of um, lingering in a, in a potentially boring moment. Like, just to slow it the fuck down and then slow it down some more and then make really odd juxtaposition uh, choices with music, for instance, in your slowed down moment. It's kind of excruciating and kind of lovely at the same time. I agree 100%. And, what you know, of course, the we'd be remiss not to mention that great score by Ennio Morcone. But what's cool is that even in the scenes that are drawn out with the tension, if there's no music, the, what I love is the sound design, where it's almost like music, like that famous opening. Uh, you hear the sound of, uh, what is it, a windmill? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, it's like this percussive. And then the scene later in the movie where the, uh, you know, Mr. Choo Choo, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think the character's <laughs> name is uh, Morton, when he's being held in his own train by those guys and he wants to gamble with them. Even though the train is still, it, they add this, it's not a very realistic sound of the train idling. Mm-hmm. And it just adds to the tension. Just that uh, act, I love that actor, too. Yeah. We, we just did a, an epi- a Patreon episode on, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, and he's the sort of um, Diana Riggs father kind of Spanish that mob would, boss. That's so ridiculous that I couldn't. That, on Her Majesty's Secret Service is one of my favorite movies. And I screened it at Bitwise last year. And the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, why does this guy look familiar with the neck brace? Yeah. Oh, by the way, <laughs> since you mentioned it, not to stop the flow here, um, I don't know how much good it will do you right now, but maybe in the future when people stream this episode, um, do you want to give a plug to your just interrupted by the virus, um, you know, your bitwise, et cetera, the things you do, Evan? A little plug. Uh, sure. I'd love to give a, pa- uh, a plug to things that are on pause right now. Um I, I host every month until March. I uh, I host every month these uh, classic films uh, called Downtown Classic Movies is the series, and it's at Bitwise. Uh, but in, the in last Fresno. one we showed was Somewhere in Time in February, and then we were slated for Scarface in March, and we've had to move it. So we have to keep we keep moving it down the line. We're waiting on word of when we can reopen. Like this month, I was going to show 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm. Uh and uh, it's just check Facebook or find me on Instagram, Fresno Film Buff, and uh, mm-hmm. I'll keep you all posted about that. And then I do another one called Savage Cinema Club, where we roast movies at Full Circle Brewery, but uh, that had to be canceled, the one in March. So, you, Are you still doing I, that with comedian, uh, comedian uh, Carmen Geffen? Uh, we were doing that, but she, uh, she moved back to the Bay Area. Hmm. So okay. I was... Uh, doing it with a rotating co-host so um you know there's been talk of doing it via zoom like this or um facebook watch but i i don't know i'm not really that interested in doing it that way but if this keeps going i might have to 
Yeah, reduced, reduced as we are. Well, reduced as you are, even to be lowering yourself to becoming a guest on this show. See what the COVID does. Um, I, 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 I know you didn't even ply me with alcohol. <laughs> here, I, let me try if I could do some over Zoom. I, um, oh, wait, here comes a drone carrying a, an IPA. That <laughs> it's, that's for me, Evan. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, it has that windmill sort of like, yeah, you're right. Like that creates a, sort of the slow tension in the beginning, right in the beginning. And I forget the actor's name, but he's in nope. like Cannonball Run, um, etc. Um, there's um, a fly that's sort of. You know, skipping around the guy's face, and he's trying to blow. Jack Elam. Jack Elam, yeah, uh, he's trying to blow the fly. <laughs> it's just so, it's so maddening. He's such a master, uh, Leon, in terms in terms of of slowing you down and irritating you with those moments. You know, little moments. I mean, I was amused by it. And anytime you see Jack Elam's uh, walleye or lazy eye in high definition, I mean, yeah. it's always amazing. And uh, they, there's all these there's. The beginning of the movie. I guess we should talk about that. It's Elam. Wait, wait, you're, you're, Strode. you froze for a minute there. It's it's Elam and Jack Elam and Woody Strode, um, the tall African American man. He was in uh, a lot of people know him in Spartacus. Also, the he professionals kind of the, with uh, with Burt Lancaster and Lee Marvin. That's a another great western. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I recommend. Uh, and then some other guy. I guess he was some Italian or German actor. They're either Italian or German in those spaghetti westerns, but um, it, it's this wonderful just waiting, and there's just little moments like, although this time when I watched it, when Woody Strode has the drops of water on his hat, and then he yeah. drinks it, I'm like, ooh, that can't be, might need a tetanus shot after that. Yeah. As if, as if the apocalypse is not uh, bad enough, I'm in my garage. My granddaughter's now opening the garage door, reversing her car out. There's the car. And you can probably hear my guy mowing my, mowing my lawn on the outside. So, hey, it's just part of the apocalyptic, uh, uh, you know, age we're living in. What, well, what's funny is that there's a lot of professional podcasts out there where they have to resort to using Zoom. So you're, yeah. you're not alone. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's um, okay. Um, yeah, unless you're Joe Rogan and you can have everybody get tests before they come in. Oh, this will be on Spotify for a ten million dollar deal before you know it, Evan, for sure. Uh, Jamie, we pull that up, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Now I can talk. I can talk about uh, uh, um, crossbow hunting or something for the next half hour. Elk. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, so I mean, there are so many great players in here, and it's like. Um, uh, you have Charles Bronson, who well, one of the things that's interesting about this film, and it's why it, it harkens to Tarantino for me um, greatly, is that immediately after that first scene with Woody Strode and, and it's Jack Jack Elam, is that um, Elam Elam is that you you move ahead and it's like wait well, now what you're a little disjointed. He's not afraid of sort of like making you do the work of of reorganizing the plot line a bit. Because suddenly it's you know there's there's a woman uh, there, there's a, a family um, who who has a house out in the middle of nowhere and he's going to go get his wife and the wife appears in the train but Henry Fonda intercedes in the meantime and I mean we can go back I'm I'm going to rush past all these things but but it's like then Henry Fonda's on the scene to sort of like create a, a disturbance we'll talk about in a minute there and then all of a sudden um, you have Charles Bronson in the bar and it's like wait is this I thought he had been shot in the first scene. You know, is this is this him before or after? And Jason Robarts enters, and it's sort of like one of the great things about this film is that it makes you, it forces you to be a participant in in what's happening. Yeah, and 
I guess it also depends on the cut you watch. We, what's widely available and what we watched on Prime is uh, the longer uh, international cut. Uh, I guess you could call it the director's cut because I think when uh, they they put back in a shot where when Charles Bronson gets up after that shootout, I guess you find out he was just shot in the arm. Right. Which <laughs> which you could still die from, but uh, oh in yeah. The, in the, yeah, in westerns, it's it's just a flesh wound. Yeah, it just goes right through you, and then you whistle a tune and, and walk away. Fucking, I mean, goddamn, you know, Bronson's a weird character up to this point, as an actor, I would say, right? Because he'd done sort of, you know, he'd been in The Great Escape on the one hand, and then he'd been sort of like kind of bobbing above and below the surface. You know, he's he's in uh, This Property Condemned with, with Natalie Wood and Robert Redford, but as a kind of minor character after The Great Escape. So it's like all the way until, like, I guess I would say, like, um, Mr. Majestic or, or Death Wish or something like that in the 70s, it was unclear about his star power to me. Yeah, no, he wasn't... He was, up until the early 70s, he was a bigger star in uh, internationally than he was in the States. That, uh, and then he came back to the States and, and the Death Wish and all those movies. and Because his career kind of took the same path that Rick Dalton in Once Upon a a time in Hollywood did where he was, yeah. you know, he was in an Elvis movie and he would show up here and there. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Rick Italian Dalton and once upon a time in, in, uh, in Hollywood, when I was watching this, how clearly it sort of draws from that as a meta story, if you will. Yeah. It, it draws from real life with actors like Bronson and, uh, well, even Clint Eastwood and, and, uh, others where it just, you know, they, they, the Italian film industry revitalized their careers. Yeah. Yeah. And that certainly happened with Charles Bronson, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, that was pretty interesting. So, so he's he's I guess I guess you could say he takes the place of like kind of the man with no name from Eastwood. He's sort of like the baton is handed over for this particular film, right? And it's the man with no name. Instead of whistling, it's like he does his own whistling through a harmonica, which is his sort of like agitating point to, to the the other characters, but also to the audience. Like, what the fuck are you? What's with this goddamn Honer action all the time? Yeah, it's, um, well, supposedly the part was offered to Clint Eastwood and he turned it down. And I'm glad he turned it down because we've already, Leone already had three films with Eastwood. So he, he gave it to Bronson and Bronson, you know, he has a high definition face. You know, he has oh, a yeah. face perfect yeah. for all those close ups and, um, uh, it, what's interesting is if you watch the trailer for the American release, they say in the trailer, a man with no name. Like, they clearly are right. capitalizing on the Dollars trilogy. Yeah. 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 I, I find um, um, Henry Fonda to be, like, the most obviously sharp performance in the film because of, like, the expectations we have about him. But to me, the gem of the film is Jason Robards, who's also kind of surprising. Yeah, he Jason Robards low key steals most of the scenes he's in. You know, he doesn't have to do much. Right. He's one of those gifted people where they make it look effortless. I mean, he just totally. Now that you mention it, yeah, it's he really is wonderful in the film without seeming. He seems to not be doing a lot, but he is doing a lot. And um, also, a, another actor who holds holds their own against these guys is Claudia Cardinelli. Oh, I mean, she's, she's fantastic. Wonderful in the film. Uh, I love her character. I wish I, I knew I more mean, about her. Course, she has kind of a Sophia Loren quality about her, no? 
yeah, I mean, she's always been easy on the eyes, but she's also a damn good actress. Yeah, she really is. And, uh, she really holds her own against these, you know, these actors. And um, I guess it's uh, one thing I noticed when I was watching it this time during the credits is that uh, in the screenplay credits, it says story by Dario Argento, uh-huh. Bernardo Bartolucci, yeah. and Sergio Leone. And yeah. um, for those that don't know, Dario Argento, 10 years later, he made Suspiria and classic horror. And Bernardo Bartolucci, he later made, uh, you know, uh, the, the, conform, um, the Conformist. Yeah, Bartolucci is the one I know. Uh, I was that, that name caught my eye as well. Yeah, Dario. I, I guess at the time, those two men, their their directing careers hadn't taken off. They were film critics, so Sergio reached out to them to uh, to help him come up with the story. So that was that was interesting to see that in the credits this time. I cannot <clears throat> imagine what the guy mowing my lawn is doing. It sounds like he's cutting a fucking forest down. I've never heard him make this much noise ever, uh, <laughs> as he's decided to do during this podcast. He must be cutting the grass like blade by blade. It sounds like it. Yeah. Blade Runner yeah. or Blade Sling Blade. All right. So, blade Runner. Yeah. So there he goes again. So um, um, one of the things I love about this film is that it's unlike a lot of Westerns, it's really not clear into the third act why it is what it is. Like, you know, it's like you get the conflict happening. You, you understand slowly why it is that... Um, um, different people are at odds with each other, but there's a super, like a series of reveals that I, I guess we shouldn't reveal here that, that are sort of uncovered in that third act that make it um, rise above um, even the cinematic Western that it is. It sort of makes you almost forget it's a Western for a second. It feels like a Russian novel almost, the way that it just sort of like, oh, this is why... Um, and in a way, maybe it's even why, uh, as a, I'm kind of a dope anyway, but why I kept, I kept in my mind saying um, to myself how the West was won, because it seems also like an apt title for, for like winning something, like something that has to ultimately um, be captured, if you will, by, by all these opposing forces. Yeah. Um, you know, I admire how the West was won. I, from a technical standpoint, it's uh, amazing you know, hopefully someday we'll be able to see it on a curved screen. But story-wise, it just, it didn't, you know, it doesn't really hold up too well story-wise. How, uh, it seems like this film is what How the West One should have been more like. It's, um... Well, maybe all, know, the, all the cameos in that, that, that 62 film um, sort of got in the way of, of what actually happens here, which is you have like three or four really strong actors, and they, it's like the, I don't know whether they respected each other or not on the, on the filming, um, but it sure seems like they did. Like they really understood how to work with each other. Yeah, it's sometimes you'll, you'll watch movies and be like, wow, these people have great chemistry. And then you find out on IMDb that they all hate each other's guts yeah. when they were making it. It's it's hard to tell, but they have they really work work well together. And um, it's it's some of the I've noticed the best epics are the ones where it's uh, a lot of it is it's mostly an intimate story yep. just told on a huge canvas. Um, yep, for and, sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and uh, what going back to what you were saying about how the plot doesn't really come into focus until the end yeah without giving anything away i think that final reveal with it, it's it's almost like a cinematic orgasm and how it you know it finally comes into focus about a certain character and 
it culminates with the music and this amazing shot uh, that was shot in Monument Valley of this flashback. And it's just so, I mean, talking about it right now, the hair on the back of my neck is, is rising. <laughs> and now my wife no is joke. leaving. <laughs> the, tech, the technical aspects of the show could not be worse today. I'm so humiliated. And yet grateful to you for being on the show, Evan, to bring some sort of like um, historical knowledge, light, you're really setting a lot of exposition here. I apologize for the background. There goes the garage door. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I think I think that um, I, one of the shockers for me also was not just that. What about the juxtaposition of of Bronson and Fonda? I mean, what a crazy oh, yeah. scenario that 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 our um, our hero is, is Bronson. And then, of course, when we get that backstory as to why. He's he's been involved and waiting in this sort of like tale of like slow, almost um, the Count of Monte Crisco level, um, you know, revenge and, and bitterness that he's felt, and also to have Jason Robards because Robards you don't know really for a little while whether Robards is a good or a bad guy, and then to find out that he's kind of really not either. I mean, I guess you'd put him in the good guy category, but he's he's more of that. Um, he's like a vehicle almost b- between Bronson and Fonda for, for the, the foils that they are toward each other. Yeah, he's definitely a vehicle for the plot because <laughs> watching it this time, I, I got to understand more of the plot yeah. in that he, you know, the murder, the murders in the beginning of the film are pinned on his character. Right. And he's used as a way to buy back a certain land and um, it's... Um, it's it's really interesting uh, the arc that his character goes through because he's definitely cynical. And uh, by the way, I just realized that Charles Bronson is literally the man with no name. They call him uh, what they call him yeah. Harmonica. Yeah, Harmonica. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Evan. Let me ask you this: what what um, two questions? What makes a good western? And then the second question is: what are your top? Whatever you can, you can choose a number three or five westerns. Oh boy, you know the westerns genre is uh, there's still a lot of them I haven't seen. It's it's such a great genre to mine, and it seems to be not as prevalent this day, uh, except for like certain shows. Uh, I think what makes a good western above all else for me is like beautiful cinematography epic vistas uh so um one of my favorite westerns is uh one eye jacks which you know we we talked about years ago on the podcast and mm-hmm. it's you know it's not everybody likes it uh but that's certainly because it was shot in vista vision in monterey well that's um, the kind of surprise right it's like yeah the like the cinematography or the, the the setting as a character can seem like a cliche or trope trope thing to say, um, but when a director makes a really interesting or directors in the case of one of Jacks makes a really interesting decision to sort of place wait a western that's by the sea. Okay, now that that creates a sort of conflict in terms of our expectations, right? Yeah, and along with that, you have this tale of revenge uh, with these characters. Uh, so. Okay, what makes a great Western is cinematography, obviously characters, uh, you know, good storytelling. So I'm going to have to say, man, you're putting me on the spot. This is a good question. Yeah. Because I think The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is in my top five or three, but now it's kind of neck and neck with this one. Uh, 
One-Eyed Jacks, um, man, I guess Unforgiven. Uh, Any John Wayne make it in there? Well, The Searchers. Okay. For sure, The Searchers. Mm-hmm. And then, just because I grew up with it, a movie called Silverado. Oh, uh, yeah. Right, that's the Quaid, the Quaid uh, vehicle, no? No, it was um, Lawrence Kasdan. It, it came out in 85. It was after the big chill. He was trying to reinvent the Western. So it was kind of a meta Western where it was a throwback ah. to the, uh, maybe I'm the thinking, older Maybe I'm thinking of the Long Riders in the late 70s. You know, I that one's been on my radar. I've been meaning to see it. And, of course, I mean, I, I'm sure you disagree with me here, but I think Tombstone is... Although I've been reading a book about the making of Tombstone, and apparently... It's a good movie, but it could have been a masterpiece had it not. It was a troubled production, to say the least. Well, uh, Tom, um, who unfortunately can't be here today because his um, one of his genital blisters burst and he's in a lot of pain, and I were on a, a show a couple of days ago, uh, the Maison Movie Club, and we talked about um, we talked about Bull Durham, and and one of the things that I think is is part of this is the expectation. Like you have certain high expectations, and and um, Leone's one of them, um, but others. And it's like if if you've been hearing about these movies for a long time and they don't meet the expectation, that's different from whether it's actually a good movie or not. Yeah, that definitely it definitely helps if you. A lot of these movies are are beholden to the the time and the place that you see them. Like Tombstone, I grew up with as a kid. My family was raving about it uh it was a surprise box office hit yeah um and uh i think blade runner the first at least the first blade runner um falls victim to that often where you know people see it a lot of people see it now and watch it on a small screen and they just don't they're like okay whatever (laughs) even when it came out it was very uh you know people it was a love it or hate it kind of film so i i get that it definitely helps if it imprints on you uh, when you're a child. There's also some of these movies, like this is one of those where um, I have almost infinite patience for a movie. So like, um, this is not nearly as long as like Lawrence of Arabia, but it's in that category of like, hmm, if somebody's not a classic movie fan or someone who's, you know, thinks of themselves as appreciating the auteurship of movies or cinema or whatever, it's kind of, it would be a tough one to sell. It could be, or, or it could be that some young film fan is watching it and being like, suddenly they, they understand the beginning of, uh, of Inglorious Bastards, which right. was clearly an unabashed, uh, homage to Leone yep. and his style. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I just lost my train of thought <laughs> because of the goddamn long guy. He's driving us crazy. I love it. My train of thought has Choo-choo. been uh, halted by a bunch of goons and the guy with the neck brace inside. Uh. <laughs> Um, okay, well, listen, I think that we would agree, you and I, that this is a fine film. I had never for seen once. it before. But for once, we agree that it, this is a fine film. Um, I'm not ready, because I just sort of have to warm up to these things to say, top 10, but it's top something. I'm immediately into my top 50 or maybe top 30. I mean, I was really, really taken um, with this film. Um, and also, I think as anyone who, who considers themselves on any level a student of film, it immediately strikes you as, as a film, a movie that's important um, to, to sort of have in your, your bank of film knowledge, you know, um, and to sort of talk to other people about appreciating film. 
yeah it's definitely and what's you know it, it's still a fresh movie when you watch it however you see its influence uh especially with the you know with the the with the serialized television shows nowadays where you you get bits of information about a character's past and it goes back and forth and uh, what i was gonna say earlier before i lost my train of thought is the pacing of this film because what's interesting is this is another movie that <laughs> i might be in the minority but i love heaven's gate and that is known as just this huge epic disaster yeah. financially it helped kill the uh the new hollywood movement however you know, all four hours of it, I can just sit back and just take it in. I mean, it definitely has pacing issues. Well, sometimes things uh, get, like, it becomes popular. Like, I think Ishtar is another movie. I don't think Ishtar is a great movie. I'm not saying that. But I think it's a it's a decent movie, actually. But it's a good movie. It, it actually I gets, watched about, Yeah, I started watching it about ten years ago, and I'm like, this is actually pretty good. And even Gary Larson, who had that famous Farside cartoon, yeah, where it was like, what was it, a video store in hell where mm-hmm. all the copies are Ishtar? Yeah. He admitted that he made that cartoon before he saw the movie, and then he saw it on a plane. He's like, well, it's actually pretty good. It just becomes a popular thing to say, and I think the English patient kind of suffers from that as well. Um, so, but again, it's some of these, some of these films just take some sort of patience that a lot of people don't have. And Wait, not- when you say English patient, do you mean like... Because I love the English patient. I love it too, but, but I, 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 it's very, very popular to say that it's, oh, God, that's so long and boring. There was even on a Seinfeld episode. There's a whole Seinfeld oh, episode really? about I that. I, I haven't got that. People hate that, that movie, and I think it's such a beautiful, gorgeous movie. Great book, too. Really? Yeah. You know, I haven't done any re- – I haven't looked at its Rotten Tomatoes score or anything. I just remember – you know, all the Oscar buzz back in 97 and uh, finally watched it years later and uh, – Loving it. I well, that's another I, thing. I guess that, ignorance is bliss. You know, it helps form a, a an, an objective opinion about films when you don't have all that outside uh, information. Well, and it's yeah, opinions. It's also those whole scores. It's like it's very. I, I get that critics can be annoying and and can be. Um, elitist and everything else. I understand that that can be true, but it's it's kind of like this easy thing. It's like oh, the critics liked you know. It's like. It, Sometimes the critics know what they're talking about. They're, after all, critics. Yeah, and um, to give you another example, that Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. I'm I'm now embarrassed to say that when it came out, I was so influenced by what the critics were saying, which is all, oh, this is this trashy, fascist, uh, sleazy, it's like a sleazy Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And when you see it now, it's just this hilarious satire. Yeah. You know, um, you know now everybody love starship troopers so i think you know the 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 critical consensus at the time it just does not hold up and now a lot of those critics nowadays have reversed their opinions so time is the ultimate critic time is the ultimate well said well time is the fire in which we burn Well, I was really disappointed that uh, my co-host Tom injured his taint on a bicycle seat accident, but it, we, I wish him well in recovering, and I'm so glad that you could be on the show, Evan. Um, thanks, thanks. thanks for coming on. Uh, can you give us um, one more plug toward your uh, your doings, sir? My my evil deeds, mm-hmm. my wicked, wicked ways. Yes, Mr. Flynn. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, just um, keep following me. If you're on Facebook, Evan Monroe Faulkner. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, I'm Fresno Film Buff. And I'm currently, I just started another project called, uh, it, it's it's going to be a podcast very soon. It's called the uh, 90s New Releases. Oh. 
and what it is is uh, it's inspired by podcasts such as 80s All Over, yep. where start in we, month by month we uh, review the the movies that were released to video shelves starting in uh, January 1990 up until December 99. And but what's going to be fun about it is that it's going to also follow the arc of home video. Oh. Like it won't just be 90s movies we watch. We'll be also watching or reviewing the films that were re-released or released onto Laserdisc and DVD during that decade, like the early days of Criterion. So that's going to be a massive project. I'm, you know, I can't just rely on Wikipedia for that. So I'm waiting for the library to open up and yeah. go through the newspaper archives. But uh, keep an eye on that. It's called 90s New Releases, and I just put up an Instagram page for that. Oh, I look forward to that. I'll follow you immediately. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Tom and I kind of pride ourselves, I don't know why we should be proud of this, of being people who really love movies. But when it comes down to it, we're not that knowledgeable. You know, we just sort of, we love watching them and talking about them, and we can talk about them for hours. And what's clear to anyone who's listened to this episode um, is how... Um, uh, much of a kind of a film historian in a way, cultural film historian. I think Evan is. I I, I lean on him for some knowledge in these these instances, and I really appreciate you coming on, man. Now, oh, oh sorry. Uh, I was just going to uh, wrap up by saying you can rate and review us on iTunes or send us your comments about how lousy you think we are to finleysonfilm at gmail dot com. Evan, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Oh, well, I was just going to say it. Also, uh, you know. Being on the spectrum helps too, but uh, <laughs> it's also the time and play. You know, I, I came of age during that home video boom, right? Where people watched, they watched a lot more movies than uh, nowadays. Yeah, there's a lot less options. Goddamn so it seemed kids! Like movies were more sacred back then. Yeah, back in our day. Am I right, Evan? Oh yeah, back in the <laughs> back in the analog days. Well, hopefully this will be over soon, and we can see you back in in um, in the flesh, in action, as it were. But um, in the meantime, I'm really looking. Don't give me that wink. I'm lo really looking forward to uh, to this new podcast that you're talking about, Evan. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. It's brother. been a pleasure. <laughs> All right, bye.